help us. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that you would now open up our minds and hearts to the word of God. That we'd understand that this isn't like reading the newspaper, it's not like reading a novel, it's not like reading any other even interesting book. But Father, this is reading the very word of God. So we pray that our minds would be attentive, that we would fix our hearts and minds on it and nothing else in these moments. That you might be glorified. Father, we express, therefore, even our humility before you to say that we don't know how we should live. You've got to tell us. We don't know how we should think. You've got to inform us. And so, Father, be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 1 Peter in chapter 5. 1 Peter in chapter 5. I want to read, beginning with the middle of verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to begin reading with the middle of verse 5 and then simply read through verse 7. Middle of verse 5 through verse 7, please. First Peter chapter 5, middle of verse 5. In the English Standard Version, the Word of God reads, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now, if you could think about putting the birth of Jesus in one word, what word would that be? If you had an opportunity to put the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, the coming of the Lord Jesus, in one word, what, what, what would that word be? If you're an unbeliever, it may be myth. It may be uh, story. It it may be um, silly. It may be the word superstitious. But of course, if you're a believer in Christ, your words would be very different to that. It might be amazing. It might be mysterious. How is it that God could come in the flesh and dwell and live among us? How could God take on the form of a human being in nature and not give up his deity and walk among us? How could that, how could that be? How could he be born, God, as a baby, this God, man, among us? It might be mysterious. The word love might come to mind as you begin to think about the very love of God that is expressed and manifested uh, in the presence of Jesus and all that he came to do. Scripture says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in his coming, you might think of the word love, you might think of the word faithful, because if you're especially a reader of Scripture and you begin reading from the very beginning of the Scripture and you see the creation, you see God's mandate to human beings, then you see human beings sin. But then the great promise of God where he says that, ah, one will come from the seed of the woman that will crush really the head of this serpent, though his heel will be bruised, this one who comes, his heel will be bruised. And then you see how that plays out throughout the whole scripture. And then when Jesus comes, you say, yes, the faithfulness of God. He promised and generation after generation after generation. He reiterated his promise. And things happened throughout the course of history, but still that didn't negate the promise of God. And so God is faithful. But this morning I would put this word to you, and that is this, humble. The very humility of Christ, as Charles Wesley puts it, he left his father's throne above. This was a demotion in in, in some sense, wasn't it? To leave the very throne of God 
to come in humility and be born as, a, as an infant, as a child, dependent, if you will, in that sense, upon his parents. It was a humbling situation, no doubt, for Mary and Joseph. It, at first, it may seem like a great honor to Mary to say, oh, you're going to carry this son of God, but, but yet it would be humbling as well because she would know and Joseph would know even in his role in all of that that, that they really didn't deserve this. It wasn't that Mary was so pure that she was able to receive and conceive this child by the Holy Spirit. She was just simply a woman that found favor with God and His grace came upon her and she knew she needed a Savior and she was carrying her own Savior, if you will, and all that would mean. And she would have to look at the mirror often and say, I don't deserve this, to be so blessed. And this, this point in history, this event, this time, it's very significant. That's even a... A word that's not even significant enough to use here, is it? Significant, it's significant, but it's more than that. And to think that through, and her part, Joseph's part, they would, they'd be humbled in the sense that they would know that politically they were at the whim of the politicians. The tax was ascribed, thus they had to travel, even though this was not the best time for at least Mary to travel. Socially, anybody could do the math and understand that they didn't get married quite in time, and this child was born in such a way that his birth would be questioned, the legitimacy of it at least. Personally, then, as Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem, he would realize that he didn't have enough power, really enough social standing, enough pull to get a good room for his wife. They end up in the stable, a, a, a very humbling thing. But not only that, it was humbling by the very nature, virtue of the place in which Jesus was born. I, I read to you from the prophet Micah, passage concerning the birth of Jesus in Micah in chapter 5, beginning with verse 2. He says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So this place is just a small place. It's, it's not even like being born in Lawrence. It's just a small place. It's just a little place. You, you, you don't even get a little dot on the map. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days, that is God himself. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in his majesty, in the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be this one who comes. He shall be their, their peace, humble even to the place where Jesus is born. In fact, if we could describe the life of Jesus, I think it could be with this little expression that he clothed himself in humility. He clothed himself in humility. You know, when one clothes oneself with something, well, what you see is what someone's wearing. What you see is, is clothing. And so, so what would be expressed from this Jesus is humility, which would be amazing. Because he was God in the flesh. He was the creator of all. He was the judge of the world. And yet he walked around graciously and humbly and gently. And people who came to him, he would give them grace, not judgment. He would teach them and he would heal them and he would free them. The gentleness, the humility of Jesus, even Isaiah the prophet in speaking of this one who was to come, says, you know, there really wasn't anything that would be attractive about him. You would look at Jesus and you'd say, he's just a guy. But he was the very son of God. 
And yet he clothed himself, if you will. He robed himself with humility so that that wasn't what was necessarily first seen. Oh, there were glimpses of his glory when the miracles were done and the teaching was amazing and all of that. But, but, but on an everyday walking around, he's just Jesus. And even himself, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart you will find rest for your souls. You won't be condemned here. I can do that because I'm God and you've sinned, but I'm not. Come to me if you're weary and burdened of all that and I'll be gentle with you because I'm humble. I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to be gracious to you. Jesus said that even to them. And then there was that night that Jesus was betrayed and he was with his disciples and he literally clothed himself with humility. If, if we would have looked into the room that Jesus was in with his disciples that night for that last Passover meal, you would have seen these men, and they would all look about the same socially. If you would observe them as they would come in, you, you would see that they may have paid some deference to Jesus, thus he may be their rabbi, he may be their leader, but in a few minutes all that would be confused because this one who was the very Son of God took off his glory, if you will, that which marked him out as being another guy at least on the same level socially as all these others, maybe above as a rabbi, but, but he took off his outer garments and his inner garments stripped down really to what we would call his underwear. I took a towel, a long one, and he wrapped it around his waist so there'd be enough on the end of it in order to go around and conduct himself as a slave by washing the feet of his disciples. If you would have looked at that moment and someone would have said, who's the master? You would have said, I don't know, but it's not the guy washing feet. Who's the slave? Oh, that's the guy washing feet. If you would have walked in, you simply would have gone up to Jesus, thrown off your shoes and waited for him to wash your feet. You wouldn't even have asked him because he had stripped himself of glory, if you will, as, as, a, as a human being at least, and clothed himself in the garb of a servant. And there he was in humility. But that was just the beginning, of course, of that night. Because that night would even be more humbling to Jesus than one could ever imagine because he was the perfect son of God taking upon himself the sin of sinners, which is why I read as the candles were being written, uh, being lit, what the Apostle Paul has written of Jesus in Philippians in chapter 2 when he says, of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of, the ser of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He clothed himself on the cross with humility. So, it shouldn't surprise us when we come to Peter and he speaks to us and he says, humble yourselves, all of you. No exception here. He's been talking about elders, he's been talking about this group, he's been talking about that group, but he says, all of you, I don't care who you are, whether you're husband or wife, or elder or not, whatever it is, all of you, I want, to humble, I want you to humble yourselves toward one another. So the question this morning, questions really, one, what is this Humility. And number two, why is it so important? And number three, how then would we express it 
That is to say, if we're really humble, how is it that we would express this humility? So what is it? Why is it so important? And then finally, how would we express it? That's where I want to go. Now, in terms of this humility, when we think of the word humility, we, we really do think of something that's lowly. That's this sense of humility. If you say that someone is humble in their appearance or humble in their dress, what you're really saying is that they're not all that fashionable. They're not wearing the latest and the greatest and the most expensive. It's, it's humble. You sort of get in your mind that this person... If you say someone is humble in their status in the community, you realize well, they're not the leaders, but, but, but they're sort of on the lower end, if you will, this notion of humble in status. And if someone comes to you and says, I was humbled by thus and such, then you know what they mean by that. They mean they were lowered by that. They, they were, their, their weaknesses were exposed. They were shown to be more dependent than independent, more out of control than in control, more unable than able. That's what it means. If somebody says something humbled them, that, that's, you get that impression. And so we don't really like that word. Now, we like it when people come to us and say, oh, you were very humble about that, if what they meant is you just got a very prestigious award and you kind of played it down. We like that. But we don't like it when people say to us, oh, you're just humble, meaning you're lower than everybody else, meaning that your weaknesses are really evident to everybody and that, that your shortcomings are just very obvious and we could all list your sins. Yeah, that's not all that wonderful for us. But Peter says, clothe yourselves in humility. In a sense, like Jesus said, lay aside any glory, clothe yourself in this humility. And you say, well, what really then is that? How did that come about in the context of our lives? And you see, hum humility is, is what we are really in the presence of greatness. Humility is what we really are in the presence of greatness. I remember, I probably told you this story before, but it's so vivid in my mind. When I was in, uh, where was I? Florida State University studying economics, you know, in a different, another life. Not in the Shirley MacLaine sense, but in a different era of my life. But uh, uh, in that part of my life, uh, one of the great things about studying in Florida is that, that that's where old professors go to die. Uh, and so they often retire there. So we were very fortunate in my days then to have an economist by the name of Abba Lerner, who was uh, one of the last links to John Maynard Keynes, who nobody likes anymore. But anyway, it was a very important thing, and, and he had come to retire there. It was warm, and he was from London, and he came to South Florida, or to Florida, anywhere in North Florida, to, 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 to teach uh, and, and to kind of retire. And I could remember sitting in the graduate student room, you know, with all these little desks and graduate students pontificating and sounding very, very important to each other, which is what graduate students do. And we were sitting there and saying all these profound things, I'm sure. And I'll never forget the moment that Abba Lerner walked into the room. We all shut up, except one idiot. And I never forget how humbled he became because he kept talking. And then all of a sudden, the great professor just looked at him and the guy shut up. And Professor Lerner then just went on and on and on and said some really profound things. But it was interesting to me, though, that about 10 minutes after he left our room, we were back at it again, acting as if we really knew what we were doing and talking about, as if he had never even arrived on the scene. None of us were really in our heart of hearts, humbled. 
But you see, when we come into the presence of God, that's who we are. Humble. When we really come into the presence of God, what humble? You remember Isaiah comes in the presence of God. He sees God high and lifted up. And what does he do? He, boom, dives. Flat on his face. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to explode here. Everything in me is about ready to, 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 to just come undone because I'm in the presence of perfect holiness. I am in the presence of God. That's real humility. There's no humility, if you will, initially apart from understanding who we are in the presence of God. And then Peter goes on, however, to say, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because it's one thing to admit before God I'm needy, before God I'm a sinner, Before God, I'm humble. But then it's another thing to admit it before you. Because I'd rather you didn't know that. I mean, God knows it, and I'm all right. But but, but I really don't want to clothe myself with humility before you. I would just as soon look pretty good, actually. But Peter says, no, 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 no. You need to be honest about who you really are. So you need to live out before each other who you really are before God. Don't live a lie. Live the truth. And this goes for everyone, but it goes at least double for Christians. Because do we, not, we not only know that we're dependent upon God for strength and for breath and all of that, but we also know that we're completely dependent upon God for our salvation, because we don't deserve it. And he has come to us and given it to us freely. He's come to us and chosen us. He's come to us and given us new life. He's come to us and enabled us to believe. He's come to us and saved us. He's rescued us from our own sin. And so if ever a time we're feeling unhumble, you know the word for unhumble, it's proud. Anytime we're feeling unhumble, all we have to do is read 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. So turn to that so you can mark it. So you can refer to it often. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul writes, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? See, no matter what it is that we have that we think is so cool, so great, whether it's Success in business, or success in athletics, or perhaps the way that we look, or perhaps the way our family has turned out, or perhaps our status in the community, or whatever that happens to be that we have that we grab onto, that we'd sort of like to showcase in front of others. The bottom line, when we stand in the presence of God, is to look at him and, and, and hold it up and say, didn't I really do well here? And when we do that, it just sort of falls on its face, doesn't it? Because then we know that it was God who gave it. It was God who worked it. It was God who blessed it. What do we have that we haven't really received, that wasn't really a gift from him? One of the passages I read from time to time during our offering time is in Deuteronomy in in chapter 8. beginning with verse 11, where Moses writes, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes which I command you today, lest 
When you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is today. We have to understand that there is nothing that we have that we have not received. So the Apostle Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, says... For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, that is, God gave it to you as a gift. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That is, why do you walk around boasting in yourself? Why do you walk around proud? Why do you walk around as if you did this yourself? When if God were here, you would know you didn't. And if God were present here and you recognized his presence and you saw it, you were aware of it, there is no way you would be walking around proud because you would realize that you are utterly dependent upon him. We're to clothe ourselves with humility as Jesus did, set aside our boasting in ourselves. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus had the right to boast in himself but didn't. We don't have the right to boast in ourselves because we aren't God. So he says, now clothe yourselves with this humility. Set it aside. That should come natural to us. We shouldn't have to be commanded to do that, but we most certainly do. So this idea of clothing ourselves with humility, the Bible also speaks to as meekness. It would be meek. See, meekness is playing out, living out this whole notion of being humble before others. We're humble before God. We live meekly before each other. I'm going to read you a passage that I read first 20 years ago, and I've been grappling with it ever since. And this is completely irrelevant. I'll just give you a personal editorial aside uh, that I don't know of any uh, three paragraphs in anything other than the Bible that has changed the course of my life more than these three paragraphs I'm about to read to you. Now, that's irrelevant. That's just a little bit about me. But I've been playing with these for 20 years. I noticed in the opening flap of this book where I wrote when I read it, and I wrote of all books which I've read and reread, none have improved my spiritual condition as much as this. It's a book entitled... Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let me read this to you. What then is meekness, or this humility towards others? What then is meekness? I think we can sum it up in this way. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. true view of ourselves that is who we are really, in the presence of God. We're dependent upon Him. We haven't got anything we haven't received. It is therefore two things. It's an attitude toward myself, and it's an expression of that in my relationship to others. That is, I understand who I am before God, and that's lived out before other people. You see how inevitably it follows 
from being poor in spirit. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek. A man can never be meek unless he's poor in spirit. A man can never be meek unless he's seen himself as a vile sinner. That is, you've seen yourself in the presence of God. You know who you really are. These other things must come first. But when I have that true view of myself in terms of poverty of spirit and mourning because of my sinfulness, I am led on to see that there must be an absence of pride. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. He really knows that. How does he know that? Because he has this sort of low self-image? No, 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 no. He's seen himself. She's seen herself in the very presence of God. We know the truth about ourselves. And, how can, and, and, and not to live that out in front of others would be living a lie. To be living as if we have it all together. To be living as if we are self-sufficient. To be living as if we, we are self-reliant and we know everything we need to know and can do everything that we need to do and all of that would be simply living a lie. He didn't say that. The meek man, likewise, does not demand anything for himself. He does not take all his rights as claims. Because, you see, he knows that he has no rights other than that which God would give the meek man, likewise, does not demand anything for himself. He doesn't take all his rights as claims. He does not make demands for his position, his privileges, his possessions, his status in life. No, he's like the man depicted by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ did not assert that right to equality with God. He deliberately did not. And that is the point to which you and I have to come. Just like Jesus. Then let me go further. The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself in his own interests. He is not always on the defensive. We all can know about this. We all know about this, do we not? That is, we all know about being defensive. We all know about being sensitive about ourselves. We all know about being worried about what other people think of us, or what other people are doing to us, and all that kind of stuff. We all know about this. Is this not one of the greatest curses in life as a result of the fall? This sensitivity about self. We spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves. But when a man becomes meek, he's finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be truly meek means we, are no, long, we no longer protect ourselves because we see there's nothing worth defending. Uh, that will plague you for 20 years like it has me. We no longer defend ourselves because we realize in the presence of God what's there to defend. That's where I get this little line. He didn't say it, Lloyd-Jones, but I use this all the time with you and with me, and that is once I've admitted to you that the best I can earn on myself is to be eternally condemned. <laughs> That's who I am in the presence of God. The best I can do on my own is hell. Then how can I be uppity around you? How can I pretend as if I'm better than that in front of you? You see, I realize there's nothing in me worth defending. Now, sometimes people accuse me of things I actually haven't done. But if they only knew what I did do, then they could even have a better case against me, probably, than they actually do. Sometimes I look at people and go, no, I didn't do that. But if you only knew what I was thinking when I didn't do that... <laughs> 
But when a man becomes meek, he's finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because there's nothing worth defending. So we're not on the defensive. All of that is gone. See, when I find myself being defensive, when someone says something to me and I feel like I need to defend myself, now he's been dead, our dear Martin Lloyd-Jones, for about 24 or 5 years. But I still see his picture in the back of my head when I start defending myself. And I hear him saying to me, old bladdy, he was Welsh, don't do that. There's really nothing worth defending here. And I think that's true. So we're not on the defense of all that is gone. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He's never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you're having a hard time. How unkind of these people not to understand you. You say, no, no, no. He never thinks, how wonderful I really am. If only other people gave me a chance. Self-pity. What hours and years we waste in this. But the man who has become meek is finished with all that. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether, and you've come to see that you have no rights or deserts at all. You come to realize that nobody can harm you. John Bunyan puts it perfectly. He that is down need not fear falling. When a man truly sees himself, he knows that nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. You need not worry about what other men say or do. You know you deserve it all and more. Once again, therefore, I would define meekness like this. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. That seems to be the essential quality. That cuts right against everything we've ever been taught as Americans, as sinners, that we love to hear. But isn't that really true? Wouldn't you love to be in that place of humility before others and meekness before others that they could actually share, tell you things and you could actually sort through it without becoming defensive, without being insulted, without taking offense, to see what's really true there. Maybe it isn't all true, but to see what is really true there. But we have a tendency to get so defensive and defend ourselves that we miss the truth in all of that. And we become unteachable because we're so proud. And we, nobody can really tell us because, well, who, who are they to tell me when they're... And so Peter says, clothe yourselves with that kind of humility. And it begins for each of us by seeing ourselves in the very presence of God. That he's always there. And that's why it's so important, I think, for us to understand that we're in the very presence of God. I've shared this story before. I don't know about you being so personal today. But I remember, I must have Tallahassee on my mind. Uh, I just went to my daughter's graduation yesterday, so I must be thinking about graduation things. But um, I remember walking across a parking lot in about 1970-something and saying to myself, I'm thinking about God. I was on the way to my office and then on the way to class and all the way, all of those things. And I'm thinking, of, I said, I'm thinking about God. And that's the way it really must be. That we're thinking about God all the time. That we're living in the presence of God. And we're living in his presence, you see. And we know who he is. And he's not only watching, but he's there and he's with us. To live proud is to live a lie. To live proud is really to dishonor him. That's why 
The significance of this is, Peter says, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He says this is so important that if, if, if it's impossible for us to receive grace in a condition of pride, we must be humble in order to receive the grace of God. And of course that's true. Grace isn't a reward for achieving humility. Grace simply goes with it. Because humility goes to God and says, I can't. Pride goes, goes to God and says, I'm all right. I can. Just give me another chance. Just give me another try. Just watch me. I'll be just fine. But you see, there's no grace then. Oh, but what comes with humility is grace. When we go to God and we say, I'm weary and I'm burdened. He says, here's rest. Here's grace to help you in your time of need. See, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. In fact, we live in Jesus' name. I mean, I've shared this before. When we pray in Jesus' name, it just doesn't mean I'm done with my prayer. Nor is it simply a magical phrase that gets us what we want or marks us out as being a Christian when we're in a group setting or any of that. It's really the way that we pray. It's the heart attitude of coming to God and saying, I have no rights to come into your presence in my own name. I really don't deserve standing in your presence. I'm coming only because this is the way you've said to come. This is the way you've made to come. And thus, I'm humbling myself, if you will. I'm seeing who I am in your presence as a sinner. And I know that I need to come in the name of Christ. He's the righteous one. He's the one who's died for my sins. He's the one who has made the way. And so we depend upon him. And so I'm coming in Jesus' name. I'm living in Jesus' name. The only one in whom I can boast is Christ himself. And notice what Peter says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7. Casting. If you have an NIV, they start a new sentence here. It's really not very helpful, by the way. Casting, having not a new sentence is better because it ties us with the rest of the expression. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Here's the way you express this humility. You do it by casting all your anxiety upon him. You do it by being dependent upon him. That's what it means to be humble before God. It means that you look at life and say, I can't. Not on my own, not on my own strength. I can't do this. God has already pronounced judgment upon me to say that the best I can do is hell, so I can't live life without him. I need his strength, I need his help, I need his grace, I need his kindness, I need his everything. And so he says, all right, all of these trials that come into your life are simply to point out to you the obvious, that you're dependent upon me. Every trial that comes in the context of life for us simply points out the obvious to us. And it has to point out the obvious to us because we start getting self-sufficient. We start getting self-reliant. We start thinking we can actually live this life on our own. And it's so interesting how true that Deuteronomy passage is that when things start going very well, we start forgetting God. And then something doesn't go so well 
And it takes us right back into reality. I am a creature. I am dependent. Nothing that I have, I've gotten on my own. Everything that I have, I've received from him. And I need to continue to live that way. The posture of the Christian can be found in Psalm 81.10. This is a wonderful little expression. You can turn to that if you want to. But it's a wonderful little expression where the psalmist simply says, Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. I am the Lord your God who called you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. That's the posture of Christians. Have you ever seen a baby bird about to receive that delicious worm from his mom? He's all mouth, all dependence. All that he can contribute to this thing is opening as wide as possible so that little worm won't slip out. And the psalmist says, that is your posture always before God. That never changes. We go to God with our mouth wide open. And so as Peter writes to this group of people who are suffering in all kinds of ways, most particularly suffering for their faith, suffering for righteousness sake, suffering as Christians, he's saying now, these fiery trials that come your way have a great purpose, and their purpose is to humble you. So clothe yourselves with humility. All of you. Humble yourselves, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility under the mighty hand of God. This is something God is doing. So humble yourselves, therefore, and open your mouths wide. Cast all your anxieties upon him, and he'll care for you. You see, when we're not casting our anxieties upon God, what we're doing is we're saying, I can handle this. I really can do this. This is really troubling me, but, 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 but by tomorrow afternoon, I'll have this all figured out, and it'll be done, and it'll be taken care of. Because life is going on pretty well. After all, we live in America, and I just need to buy something else, or I need to sell something, or I need to get a better job, or I need to find another person, or something. Everything's out there for me. It's just out there. I just have to grab a hold of it, and if I do, everything will be fine. And God says, no, 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 no. Open your mouth wide. If you're not casting your anxieties upon God... It means you're proud. And so all of these things come into the context of our lives so that we can be reminded of the obvious and so that God can be glorified by supplying. And you say, well, what's going to fill my mouth? What's going to fill me at these times? What really is going to come? And of course, the answer to that question is, is grace. Grace to continue to persevere in faith giving glory to God, even in the midst of the difficulty. Now, he may take the difficulty away, and when he does that, that's really cool. But he may not. But he will give grace. You know, Second Corinthians, I suspect, <clears throat> in chapter 12, in verse 7, the apostle writes, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations that is, to keep me from being proud. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, have, um, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now why is God's power made perfect in weakness? Because 
God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. When are we most humble? When we're weakest. Therefore, when do we receive more grace? When we're weak. And, and what does grace bring? Power. Power for what? To continue to persevere. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you say, well, does that mean for the course of eternity that all I'm going to be is weak? Well, in one sense, yes. In fact, when we get to glory, we'll recognize our dependence even more and we'll be so filled with utter dependence upon God, walking around, figuratively speaking, with our mouths wide open so much that it'll be heaven. You see? It'll be great. There'll be no anxiety at all because all of our cares will be vanquished, really, and vanish in Christ. No anxieties at all, because we'll be perfectly humble, perfectly dependent, perfectly related to him. But he does say this. Humble yourselves, verse 6, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, just like he did Jesus. See, the pattern of Jesus' life is the pattern of our life. He was humbled and exalted. We're humbled and exalted. We're humbled because we're related to him. And in his grace, he humbles us so we may be dependent upon him. And then he exalts us because we're related to him so that he can be glorified. And he says, now live your lives casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Now that's really the question, isn't it? Does he really care for you? I mean, can you really trust him? I mean, I mean, if you're going to live in this way of humility, not defending yourself, who then is? I mean, if you're not going to look out for your own interests, who is going to look out for your interests? When people come against you, well, then who's going to defend you before them? If you're simply going to, if you will, look past that and serve them, love them, who then is going to defend you, certainly one who cares for you. And he says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Now, does he? That's really the question. And the answer is found all over the Bible, but one place in particular, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. For he who did not spare his only son, Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The point being, God says, I showed you, showed you that I cared for you in the cross. I didn't withhold my son. And if I will give my son for you, why won't I give you every other good thing? If I won't withhold my son, why wouldn't, once I've given you him, why would I keep back a nickel? Why would I keep back a thousand? Why would I keep back a million? Because he's worth infinite. Once I've given to you him, and that's why, how do you know? When people say to you, how do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God cares for you? The answer is Jesus, yes. 
It's Jesus. Look at him. He's the one who humbled himself, came, as the prophet Micah says, in a very humble place, but to be our good shepherd and to give us peace. He does care for you. So you can rest assured that all your anxieties can be cast upon him. But you only cast all your anxieties upon him when you've been in the presence of God and you've seen who you are. And when you've seen who you are then in the presence of God, you say, oh yes, I am dependent. I really can't. But Jesus did. And thus, he's proven that he cares. He casts all his we cast all our anxieties upon him because he really cares for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in your graciousness to us, you sense our Lord Jesus to live and to die and to rise and intercede, to defend, to rule and reign over all things on behalf of the church for our sake, promise to do good, bring good for all those who love you and are called according to your purpose. If you didn't spare your son but gave him, surely we would know that you do care for us, so thank you. I pray, God, that we can see ourselves before you and thus not play games in front of each other. Just walk with humility understanding that we're needy, that we're weak, and we're sinners without hope except in Christ. None of us better than the other. None of us worse than the other. All of us in need of you. Father, I pray that would just mark out our fellowship with each other. We wouldn't find ourselves getting angry. wouldn't find ourselves being insulted we would find ourselves forgiving and loving and caring and putting the interests of others ahead of our own. Please do that, I pray. And even now, take this bread and this juice that's before us. Set it apart in a way that would enable us to really see Jesus. That we might cast our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it everyone who's seen themselves in the presence of God and who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy, which he gives to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus we believe and depend upon Christ and Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel, and that is freely, for we know the answer to the question. The question being, what 
do we have that we have not received? And we know the answer to that is nothing. Everything that we have, we have been given. Most especially our salvation in Christ. And thus, it's our heart's desire to live as becomes a follower of Christ, meaning that we'll live humbly to cast all our anxieties upon him, knowing that he cares for us. So if that's true of you, I'd invite you.